So what picture comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism? If you grew up in church, you have so many goofy, funny pictures that could possibly come up to your mind. But when you hear that word evangelism or evangelist or evangelize, what image pops up into your mind? Uh, maybe for you, uh, you've been a waiter or a waitress, and you had to work the dreaded post-church lunch, and you thought you received an incredible tip with a $100 bill, but oh, look closer. On the other side, it says some things are better than money than John three sixteen. Let me tell you that this is not good news to a waiter or waitress on Sunday lunch, right? But maybe you think you have to be like sneaky and give them a little Jesus when they're not thinking about it, bait and switch. Maybe for you, you're kind of shy and uh, you've thought about evangelism. Like, I'm just going to let my wardrobe do the talking. Like, I'm going to get like the, this Christian shirt or clothes that's going to like really like, they're gonna, it's going to point them to Jesus. So if you're looking for your next Christian t-shirt and you're into CrossFit as well, <laughs> this is what the CrossFit should be wearing, the ultimate deadlifter. Please do not wear this shirt. Please do not come up to me like I got that shirt you were talking about. No, this is a joke. Don't do it. Uh, maybe for you, when you think about evangelism, you think about the dude or the lady on the corner with the bullhorn sort of like screaming, repent, repent, don't you know that God loves you? But he's saying like an angry voice and you're like, what are we even talking about here? Somebody who like sounds a little crazy on the street corner. Maybe for you, uh, you think about that moment of evangelism at the end of a church service where the lights get dimmed and the pastor starts speaking in an intense whisper and the creepy music comes in underneath of them. I, I was thinking we were getting creepy music going, but we're not going to do that. But then they're like everybody close their eyes and there's this prayer where you have to repeat directly after the pastor and if you say the prayer correctly then you get your like ticket to heaven at the end of it or the idea of like you know everybody opens their eyes and everybody celebrates and like you get heaven you pull an oprah you get heaven now you get heaven you get heaven like we think that's what evangelism looks like if you've grown up in church i've like experienced all of those things many 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 times let me ask you this though um, what emotion did you feel what happened underneath the hood when you saw in the video that we're taking a look at evangelism what does it mean to evangelize what happened in you what sort of stirred up in you for some of us it might be pressure where you feel like, oh, you know, this is one of those things that I need to be doing, and I need to, as that person I know that I need to share my faith with, and uh, I, I, I don't want to be pushy, but I feel like I've had that thing before where you're like, oh, if, if you don't tell them, you might be the only Jesus that they ever meet, and so you feel all the pressure that they're going to go to the bad place, not the good place, if you don't say your thing, so you feel pressure. Maybe some of us, we feel guilt and shame because it's one of those things that we know we ought to do, but we're just like, oh, it's just, uh, it's not for me. Like, I just don't do this. My faith is a really private thing, a really personal things so we can't imagine ever sharing the reason that we have the hope within us others of us we're just like i'll just take a pass this is i'm not that kind of christian i'm not that pushy christian joel like we should leave this to like the professional christians the one with the microphones and up on stages like this is why i invite people to church so you can tell them about jesus like that might be what you're thinking or maybe i'm just assuming when i take the temperature of our church here at bridgeway um, i think that maybe we all mostly fall into this category where we're like you know what I love that quote from St. Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And we just really focus that. We, we think it's never really necessary. And we just think, like, I'm just going to love my neighbor so well. I'm going to love my neighbor so well. I'm going to mow his yard. I'm going to, like, edge his yard so well that he's going to look at the edging, and he's just going to be like, you know what? Jesus is the king of the universe. I want to give my life to him. <laughs> Look at that edging job. We, we think that if we just love them enough, that's what we want to do. We don't want to be the pushy Christian. We want to serve them and love them, which is a beautiful thing, Bridgeway. I'm so glad that, that is a part of our culture, of our ethos here. But what 
I want to do, what I felt so led to take us on a journey in is pushing us a little bit further than this. <laughs> because the lost cause of Jesus, to, to seek and save the lost, is so vital to what God is up to in the world. I want to push us into this a little bit farther. And it's hard because we find ourselves in a cultural moment uh, that is so, uh, you know, categorically against the idea of sharing our faith or helping people see what we have found in Jesus. We live in a cultural moment where speak your truth is a mantra or you do you, I do me is like the calling card of our cultural moment. In our culture today, tolerance is a top value where you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we don't bother anybody. And in this moment where tolerance is the highest value in our culture, there are people asking the question, like, not only, like, should we do evangelism and share our faith, but is evangelism good? Is it right? Does it cause more harm than it does good? And I think there's so much beauty that comes from our, this cultural moment where we are actually considering other people's perspectives and their lives. And tolerance is not a dirty word, but there's this other side of it that we think like, well, I, don't, I know I, I never did it, but I know I was supposed to, but now you're saying we shouldn't do it? I mean, there's been some interesting research done. Back in 2019, I remember reading this and just marking it down, being floored by it, by the Barna Group researching about evangelism and sharing our faith, sharing um, the message of Jesus with others, they discovered this, that almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong, not weird, not awkward, but wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. This is compared to a little over a quarter of Gen X and one in five boomers and elders. And don't worry, I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you're an elder or not in this moment. But we see here there's, like a, there's been a, a sea change. There's been a tide shift in this to where evangelism is not just awkward or ignored, but there seems to almost be a moment where we think it's bad. And we found ourselves in this cultural moment being almost allergic to the idea of sharing our faith. Like we get close to it and we're like, no, that doesn't feel good. doesn't feel good. I don't like it. I don't like it. And we're allergic to it. I, I've just come to realize the last couple of years, I love living in the Midwest. Um, I, I realized that I could live in other places in the country, in the world. And I actually love living in Indiana. I love the seasons. I love the Midwest. But I've also come to understand that I am allergic to Indiana. Like I'll go travel to other places, spend a week in Florida, and I wake up and my eyes aren't itchy. I don't have to blow my nose four times before I do anything. I, 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 like, I feel good. I realize I'm, I'm allergic to this thing that I love so much. How could that be? <clears throat> and I think the reality is that many of us would say that we're followers of Jesus and we love what Jesus has done in us and what he's, how he's changed us and our trust in him and our relationship with him. But we find ourselves still allergic to sharing that with other people. There feels to be something off, something that doesn't quite compute, something that doesn't quite feel good when we share it to other people. But how could we be allergic to sharing something so good? And I, I want you to hear this. And I'm coming not from an angle of someone who's got this figured out, who's just so comfortable, and this is his wheelhouse, sharing his faith with others, which you might find weird because of what I do for a living, um, you know, 
preaching on a stage at a church. Uh, but like the reality is this has brought up a ton of tension in me over my life, especially after I decided to be a pastor, uh, because I'm bad at this. I am bad at like having a conversation with somebody and then taking it to the next level. And I feel all this pressure so often to where like, you need to seal the deal, you know, always be closing kind of thing going on when I'm talking to people. But I just don't compute in that way. I, I'm not the kind of pastor, if you've gone here for much time, where I have people like stand and raise their hand, do their whole repeat after me kind of thing. It's not the way that we approach evangelism because it's honestly not natural for me at all. And it's never been natural for me. I remember growing up in a youth group where they wanted us to grow in evangelism. So they gave us these scripts with four or five questions and they sent us out. I was in eighth grade, by the way. This is so funny. They sent us out into a neighborhood where we're supposed to go door to door. And the very first question after they opened the door, we were supposed to ask them was, sir, ma'am, if you would die today, do you know where you'd spend all of eternity? Terrible first question to ask anybody, by the way. Not a good way to be a good neighbor at all. Uh, but I remember that was like the first question that was supposed to like lead them down this path to where they would like have to make a decision if they wanted Jesus to forgive them for their sins and go to the good place and not the bad place. And I remember in part of the training, they asked uh, us to be, when you knock on the door, when you ring the doorbell, um, man, you need to be praying so hard that their hearts would be open and receptive and that they would hear the message of the gospel. And they told us to pray in that moment. And I'm telling you guys, the truth. I have never prayed harder than when I rang that doorbell or when I knocked on that door and I prayed so hard, Jesus, in the power of your name, may there be nobody home every single time. I'm like, hey, this is going to be the worst thing ever. Please, nobody be home. Please. Dog barking. Just let it be a dog. I hear something moving. This is terrible. <clears throat> but there's this allergy that we seem to have towards it so often. And if you feel that way, Man, I am right there with you. But there is an inherent tension in this. Because to Jesus, uh, this was something that he was always on about. Like I said, someone asked Jesus what his mission was. He says, I, I've come to seek and save the lost. Jesus told stories of lost sheep, lost coins, lost children, and how much they mattered to the Heavenly Father. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two to spread this message of his love. At the end of Jesus' time on earth, before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he gave his disciples the great commission to go out into the world and baptize everybody and tell everybody about him, making them disciples. Then the whole book of Acts was not a church that was on defense, but a church that was on offense, telling everybody in the face of religious and political persecution that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is risen and Caesar is small potatoes. And they were going and telling everybody about it. And so we know that this means a lot to Jesus, but in the face of this cultural moment and how awkward it makes us feel and how I argue today that the way that the gospel was presented to us, man, it makes me ask this question that I've been wrestling with for a couple months now. Here's the question. Is the lost cause of Jesus a lost cause? <laughs> is his cause to seek and save the lost and to invite us to be a part of that mission here on earth? Is it a lost cause? Does it even matter anymore? Does it work anymore? Does it do any good anymore? Is, isn't just like it's inappropriate for us to even to call people lost and us found and whatever that might look like? Is the lost cause of Jesus a lost cause? I want to take us on a journey the next four weeks where I want, to, I want to challenge us. I want to um, invite us to consider, no, it's not a lost cause. There is a way that we can understand this message of Jesus, that we can live out this message of Jesus, where we don't have to have the bullhorn on the street corner. We don't have to make people feel awkward. We don't have to treat sharing the gospel like a sales pitch, a high-pressured sales pitch. But we can partner with God in a way that brings us to life 
and it spurs beautiful things in your homes, in your relationships, in your workplaces, in our community, and in this world. I really believe it. So I want to invite you to go on the journey with me. And today we're going to start with trying to understand what this gospel thing was all about that Jesus was sharing. I want to look at the gospel that actually Jesus shared and maybe look past some of the ways that in our Western American evangelical culture it's been diluted and sometimes, in my opinion, distorted to make an easy sales pitch, to make eternity, you get heaven, you get heaven. I want to look beyond that. Because I think if we don't get the message the way that Jesus was preaching the message, we'll end up with a message that's not the real thing, that's a counterfeit. So this morning, I want to talk about the gospel that you and I are invited to share and how you and I are invited to share it by looking at what it meant to the first century listeners and followers of Jesus. When we hear the word gospel today and sharing the gospel, uh, I think our minds go to a lot of different things. Sharing the gospel sometimes means sharing uh, the Romans road or it's the four spiritual laws or making sure that people know that there's eternal life and forgiveness through Jesus and they accept that and they go to heaven and not to hell. We think of that when we think about sharing the gospel. But what's fascinating to me that I've learned over the last couple of years is the word gospel is not a religious word at all. The word gospel was not a spiritual term at all. It was actually a geopolitical military term in the first century. The word translated to gospel or good news in your Bible is this word in the Greek, the euangelion. Euangelion, 10 o'clock service. Can you guys say it with me? The count of three, euangelion, one, two, three, euangelion. Good, you guys didn't say jellion or anything. You guys are all over it. The euangelion was a gospel. And again, this was not a religious, spiritual word. It was a military term. When a conquering country would come in and defeat a nation, they would send a herald in after the battle and say, here's the euangelion, here's the good news. We beat you, and now you're part of us. <laughs> and we killed a lot of you guys, and we won, but now we're all going to be friends, and you guys get all the benefits of our country. This was a gospel. This was a message that now there's peace because we've killed you. Now there's peace between us, and now you're a part of our country. This phrase, euangelion, was first popularized by Alexander the Great hundreds of years before Jesus in the Greek empire. Here's a picture of Alexander the Great. He looked just like this, I imagine. <laughs> Alexander the Great would conquer a people, and he would send it a herald to announce the gospel, to announce the euangelion. And when they would conquer a people, it meant that now you get all the benefits of the Greek kingdom. The Greek kingdom has arrived, and now you get the pillars of Greek society and culture, that you get education, healthcare, entertainment, athletics, indoor plumbing as part of the kingdom of Greece. Congratulations, you've been conquered. There's a new king, a new kingdom. The euangelion of Greece is here. That's how the word was popularized. Fast forward a few hundred years to the birth of Jesus, and now the Greek empire is gone, but the Roman empire is ruling the world. All the way from Africa to Spain, ruling the world. And we're told in the Christmas accounts of Jesus' arrival that this guy named Caesar Augustus was on the throne of Rome. Caesar Augustus was leading the Roman empire. And there was a gospel that Rome sent as well. 
There's actually been archaeological discoveries found in a place called Priene in southwest Turkey that describe the gospel, the euangelion of Caesar Augustus and of the Roman Empire. Here's what it looks like. It was discovered a few hundred years ago. And archaeologists and translators have done their best to understand what was on this inscription of this temple in southwest Turkey of Priene, part of the Roman Empire. This is what it said. Citizens of Priene, since divine providence has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus Caesar, whom she filled, she being divine providence, filled with virtues for the benefit of all mankind, bestowing on us Augustus Caesar as, check this out, savior of the world. For he has put an end to war and he has brought perfect peace by his advent or his arrival. Check out Christmas language there. By this, the epiphany of his birth, he brought the gospel, the euangelion of peace to all mankind. For that reason, the Greeks of Asia have on this day declared that the new year should begin from now on the day of his birth as God, the Caesar Augustus. Never will another gospel surpass the gospel of Caesar Augustus that has announced, that was announced at his birth. He is not only Lord of the Roman Empire, but it says here at the end, but Lord of the earth and the calendar and time itself. This was the gospel of the ruling Caesar at the time that in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, a poor refugee boy named Jesus was born. We go a little bit farther. And Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, and this guy named Mark, wrote down this biography of Jesus' life. And it began saying, these are the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how subversive, how dangerous, how explosive those words were? That there's a new gospel with a new king and a new kingdom. And his name is Jesus couple verses later into the gospel of Mark, we see Mark describing what Jesus' talking points were as Jesus went around. What was his message? What was the gospel that Jesus preached? And it went a little something like this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion of who? Of God. This was the message, the gospel of, of God, the euangelion of God. Jesus said these words, the time has come. Notice the immediacy that something new, something fresh, something exciting is not happening after you die, not happening when you get older, but the time has come, Jesus says, something new is happening. He continued and said this, that the kingdom of God has come near. This was Jesus' gospel, that the kingdom of God has come near. Notice the first century listeners, how he didn't say the kingdom of Caesar. He didn't say the kingdom of the sword. He didn't say anything about Augustus. He said the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we as Western uh, American enlightened people, we hear kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but I just grew up thinking kingdom of God equaled heaven that I go to when I die. That's what he was always talking about, that heaven, going to heaven is, is close. That's not what was said. They would not think about anything post-mortem. They would think about who was ruling and reigning right around them. Jesus is announcing that through him, God is bringing a new order, a new way of life, a new relational dimension between you and the divine, a new way for you to see every single person that you ever come in contact with in this thing called the kingdom of God. And he says, it's come near. It's at hand. It's available for everyone. 
And then Jesus gives his application, his challenge, and it's not very good preaching hermeneutics because it's got to be explained a lot, but he says this, the kingdom of God has come near. Here's what you need to do. Repent and believe this good news that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, I grew up in church, and every time I saw the word repent, I just translated immediately, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning with a wagged finger. It was just what it was, turn or burn, stop sinning. That's all that I thought repent was. But again, this is a word that Jesus employs that's not a spiritual, religious, biblical word at all. To repent was actually another military term that meant if you were marching in one direction, to repent was to turn around and do an about face. It was to think differently, to return back to your source. And Jesus says, hey, this kingdom of God message, it's going to change everything, but you've got to change what you think, change where your feet are pointed. You've got to repent and believe, to trust that this is the good news. And it changes everything. This was the gospel that Jesus preached. Not that there's, we need to get out of here. There's like, we just need to feel something inside, believe something in our minds, and then everything was going to be great. But no, it was an announcement of a new king and a new kingdom coming through Jesus, crashing into our current reality that looks hopeless. He says, turn around what you think, rethink everything, and believe, trust this good news. And I love so much about this, the gospel being painted in this way because we see so quickly that this was not just an announcement, a, pronoun- a pronunciation, like, hey, here we go, everybody, we're going to pronounce this new kingdom, and then nothing happens. All through the gospel, you see how action and demonstration was a part of Jesus preaching this gospel, that the kingdom of God has come near. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records for us this as Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, and here it is, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But he wasn't just announcing, wasn't just proclaiming and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and are paralyzed, and he healed them. I love this so much. Jesus is preaching this new kingdom, but he's not just going to talk about it. He's going to be about it. Everywhere he went, he was leaving these hints of the kingdom, these pictures of what it looks like when God's in charge, the new order that God is bringing to the world where chaos doesn't win, brokenness doesn't win, but hope and restoration is the calling card of what he's doing. Jesus then goes chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, and he preaches the greatest sermon ever given called the Sermon on the Mount or what we like to call around here, Jesus' kingdom manifested to say, you want to know what it looks like to be a citizen of this kingdom that God's bringing? You live this way. This is how you trust God. This is how you treat people. And it's this amazing, incredible, world-shaping teaching that has shaped so much of our Western society that it's hard for us even to unpack. But he steps off of the mount at the end of this teaching. In the beginning of chapter 8 of Matthew, he immediately comes across an enemy. He comes across a Roman centurion, someone who's oppressed Jesus' people and caused so much harm to the Jewish people. And this Roman centurion comes up to Jesus begging and says, I've heard that you have this incredible ability. I heard that you're a different kind of leader and you're connected with God. I have this servant boy. Will you come heal him? He's going to die if you don't heal him. And I'm sure everybody was like, what are you going to do, Jesus? You can't do this. He's a Roman centurion. He's our enemy. He's the bad guy. And what Jesus does is he again demonstrates that the, the boundary markers of this kingdom are invisible. There are none. And he heals this Roman centurion's boy to much of the dismay of all of his comrades and all of his buddies that are following along with him. This kingdom 
was in announcement and demonstration. These things are uniquely and intrinsically tied together that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he's like, watch me. You want to see what it looks like? Watch this over and over and over again. And watch this. You want to make the boundary markers of who's in and who's out? Jesus is like, I'll remind you that's not your job in the first place. And I'm going to blow them all up and say, this is for everybody. And that is good news. That was the gospel of Jesus. There's a couple things I think we need to, hopefully today we need to, I want to gently demolish. (laughs) When we think about the gospel, what we think about. There there is a misnomer, there's a misunderstanding about this gospel that we're invited to embody and invited to share with other people. That it's all, it's about a ticket to heaven. Like the goal is to get people to trust this so they go to the good place, they go up and they don't go down at the end. And the goal is eternal life and people are always leading with, don't you want to live forever with God and not be tortured for all of eternity and all that kind of stuff. And so we think that the gospel is just a ticket to heaven and we think the goal of eternal life is that we go up and not down. And I think actually a close look at the scriptures would reveal that there's nothing farther from the intent of Jesus' words. Jesus' friend and follower, John, records some conversations with Jesus. And in John chapter 5, Jesus has this to say about eternal life. I love this so much. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. It seems to me that when Jesus speaks about eternal life, he's not just talking about something for some time down the road, but he's talking about something that can be grasped in the here and now and that will never extinguish. I don't want to get all grammar on you this morning, but check out the verb tense that Jesus uses when he talks about eternal life. Jesus says he has eternal life and they have has passed out of death into life. I did my homework, and that is present possessive, y'all. That's not future tense at all. What Jesus is saying here, there's something about eternal life that can be grasped in the here and now, a taste of reality of eternal life before we breathe our last. And it seems to be that this is what Jesus is offering us. A little later, John 17, near the end of Jesus' life, John records this from from Jesus' teaching. Jesus says this, this is eternal life. Now, we might want to finish that sentence with, this is eternal life. This is my mansion up on the hill. This is like that first bite of cheesecake that I've been thinking about like over and over and over again. Like it's that internal pleasure, that amazing thing. This is eternal life. But Jesus goes, no, I'm going to flip it on its head. This is eternal life to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. It seems to be in the first century mind that eternal life, we think of eternal life and we think about life that just goes on forever. It's everlasting life, like that incredible piece of gum that never loses its flavor. That's eternal life. But in the first century mind, eternal life was never about a quantitative amount of days or years. It was qualitative. It was talking about a quality of life that we could grasp here and never, ever end. 
There are two words used in the original language for life that are found in our New Testament. The first is bios life. Bios life is the everyday kind of life that we experience. It's the over and over, like living and breathing life. And in this bios kind of life, there's 250,000 hours of sleep or like 125 if you have like little kids or toddlers, uh, 76,000 meals, 200,000 trips to the bathroom. Like it's just like the normal churn of our life. That's bios life. What's fascinating is that Jesus never uses the word bios when he talks about eternal life. He uses the Greek word zoe, zoe. Can you guys on the count of three say zoe with me? One, two, three, zoe. This is abundant life. This is life that is the divine life. This is a life that has a quality of life that many would consider the kingdom life. This is a mercy over judgment life. This is love over fear life. This is purpose over aimlessness life. This is tables over fences life. This is life to the fullest. When Jesus says that if you follow me, you already have eternal life, he's saying that you have, can tap in to the divine flow of life that is always going, never ended, and doesn't even know a beginning because it's always been found in him. When you trust and know Jesus, you are in the flow of that eternal life right here. There is freedom and hope now, and yes, it is eternal. It will never end. Because eternal life was never about counting the days. It was about the quality of life that can go on forever. And Jesus is saying that you can access that now. Dallas Willard, a great Christian writer and philosopher, had a, a, a picture or a, a graphic over his desk in his office at UCLA that said, eternity is now in session. I love that so much because that's the reality that Jesus is bringing, that a taste of eternity is in session because the kingdom of God is colliding with the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God will it's not about getting a ticket to heaven. It's about experiencing the life of heaven and hope and freedom right here and right now. One more thing I want to gently demolish is the idea that oftentimes the gospel and sharing the gospel is, is given in the terms of evacuation. I've literally heard pastors and I've read authors say that we need to get as many people in the lifeboat to go to heaven as possible because the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, it's all going to burn up and it's all going downhill. And we just need to get people out of here, get them to pray the prayer, trust Jesus and get out of here. It's like that whole like I'll fly away thing. Like the goal is to get out of here, evacuate this place to go to heaven because the world is going to you know where. And I want to like I, I want to, us to deconstruct that because I don't think that's where the story is going. And if you don't understand where the story is going, then you might end up in a place like that. But. Through the book of Revelation, we see where the story is going. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, the last chapter, um, John, Jesus' disciple we talked about a couple minutes earlier, he's in Ephesus, and he's describing a vision that he was given while he was in prison on the island of Patmos, revealing what's truly going on and how things are going to ultimately play out. And it's not a picture of evacuation. It's so much better than that. Revelation chapter 21 Starting in verse 3, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea that would describe chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here's the hope. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne, Jesus said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. Take notes, Johnny boy, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is where the whole story is going. This is not a picture of evacuation. This is a picture of restoration because God is in the restoration business. He's in the restoration business in the cosmos, in the massive scale, but he's in the restoration business in your homes, in your hearts, in your families, in your marriages, in your workplaces. He wants to put the world back together, not abandon it and burn it up. This is where the whole story is going. And that's good news that everything sad, don't miss this, everything sad is going to become untrue because love wins and life wins and they're found in Jesus. Oh my gosh, this is good news. This is stuff worth sharing. And this is so much better than let's get everybody out of here because the whole thing's burned up. God does not give up on his creation. He doesn't give up on you either. This is good. This is worth sharing. This is the gospel. <laughs> I love how pastor and author Rich Viotos from New York City, um, New Life Church, he says this about the gospel. He says, the gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ. And through his life, death, and resurrection, and enthronement, a new humanity, a new community of people is created. And the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Oh, man, that is the good stuff. And that is the story that you and I are charged, that we are invited to bring to our world, that the kingdom of God is coming and the kingdom of God is here and everyone is invited to it. Isn't there this funny thing that when we receive something, when we experience something that's so good, that's so compelling, that wakes something up inside of us, we just don't have to be told to share it. We just naturally share it. Like maybe it's a new restaurant that you tried. Maybe it was the latest Mission Impossible movie. Maybe it was like when you saw Ted Lasso season two, you're like, I need everybody to watch this. Or it was a book that you read, or you saw tour dates of your favorite band going to be in Indianapolis, and you're like, I got to get my friends to come see them because they're amazing. It's going to change your life. Like whatever it might be, like we don't have to be told to share it. It's just natural for us to share it. I think so often we don't share the good news because the version of good news that we were handed is not that good. But the original good news that's something we got to tell people. We're compelled to tell people. And that is powerful, powerful stuff. So this is where we're going. Today, I wanted to talk about the why that we are still in this lost cause game. Uh, this is, and what we're going to do the next three weeks is we're going to talk about the how we work this out, how we live this out. But this is what we're going to come back to week in and week out in a sentence. This is what it looks like when we evangelize. This is how I want us to be known as Bridgeway as we evangelize. Right here. We evangelize when we announce and embody the kingdom of God. And we invite everyone to trust Jesus and King and everyone into the kingdom. We evangelize when we announce and embody. When we tell people and we live it out, we show it that the kingdom of God is here and it is now and they're welcome into it. We invite everybody to trust Jesus as king. So we announce, not necessarily with a bullhorn, but how we live our lives, the way that we include others, the way that we love others, the way that we tell people the why behind the what that we do. 
we embody. This is, again, something that we demonstrate, not something we just talk about because talk is cheap and talk doesn't get the job done. But we embody. We are a signpost of this heaven crashing into earth in Kokomo as it is in heaven, the up there coming down here with the way that we live our lives. We embody it and we live it out in action. And we invite everybody to trust Jesus is king. That's a funny thing in America, in church. We're really good in the American church trusting Jesus as Savior, for him to forgive us, to save us from our sins, to save us from going to the bad place, going to the good place. Really good at that. We don't talk about Jesus as king and trusting him to lead us, to help us make decisions and to run everything through his lens before we do things in our finances, in our families, in our work, in our parenting. Jesus invites us to trust him as king. And here's the good news about trusting Jesus as king. Is that this king doesn't make us pay for our own sins. He picks up the tab. He absorbed them all upon himself at the cross. He's a king who loves us so much that he went to the front lines and he died in the battle for us. And that's a king worth living our whole lives for, laying our whole lives down for. This is the why. That we evangelize and we announce and we embody the kingdom of God. And we invite everyone to trust Jesus as king and be a part of this restoration mission that God is on. And this is so important. I, I want us to like get, come back like real home. I know we spent a lot of time in like walking you through this and theory through the scriptures and a lot of theological talk this morning. But this is why this matters so much. It's because we all know people, and maybe it's not been long since we were, and maybe we're still living by the rules and by the reign of another gospel. We, we, we know people that are living under another announcement, another way. Sometimes it might look like the gospel of upward mobility or careerism. Sort of if I just get that next promotion, if I just get into that next pay band, if I just get that office, then I'm going to feel satisfied. It's going to actually fill me up. Maybe it's science. If we can just discover enough, <clears throat> then the universe is going to make sense, and I'm going to get what I want. Maybe it's, sometimes it's through politics. If we just get the right person in office, then everything's going to be the way that it's supposed to be, and we keep those people out of office, then everything will be great, and I'll feel satisfied, and I won't wake up in the middle of the night looking at the tweets from the night before and feeling stressed. Some of us feel that way. Some of it's a sexual identity or gender identity. If I can just be what I feel like I am, then everything is going to fall into place. And I just need to live that out because that's the number one thing about us. Some of us are living by the parenting gospel. Many of us. We live through our kids' joy and their experiences, their triumphs and their failures. And we think that we'll be fulfilled through them. And kids are a great gift, but they're a poor God. We know so many people, and we, maybe we fall into those categories where we're living under a different gospel. We're believing and trusting a different gospel, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't play out. It doesn't last. But this gospel of King Jesus and his kingdom coming here and hope and restoration and healing, man, this is the stuff that satisfies and that lasts forever. And we get to share that with people to let them know. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these videos. Um, a couple years ago, there were these videos going around of an audiologist's office, audiologist ear doctors, where they would help people with hearing aids and help them with hearing. And they'd have these videos of babies that maybe had fluid in their ears or maybe they had hearing loss, but then they would get um, 
hearing aids and they could hear for the very first time. And they would do this hearing test for the first time where they would go beep. And you would just like watch the little baby's face and they would they hit beep again, beep. And then it would like the baby would start giggling and then hear his own voice for the very first time. And then everybody in the office is crying. It's this beautiful, beautiful moment of hearing this baby hear his voice for the first time. Uh, I remember a couple, uh, maybe a little over a year ago, I heard a story of a 20-something woman who had been deaf her whole life, never heard a voice, never heard a sound, but she finally got insurance, and she got into the audiologist's office, and she heard the beep. She was in there with her father. She heard the beep, and it was the same kind of thing, and she starts giggling a little bit. She heard her voice for the very first time with this next beep. The audiologist is in there. Her father's in there, and she's in there, and for the very first time, her father starts speaking to her and starts saying over and over again, I love you, baby girl. I love you, baby girl. And for the very first time, this 20-something heard it. And they're all crying. They're all a blubbering mess. And there's so much joy in this office because here's somebody who could hear her father's voice for the very first time say, I love you. I think it begs the question, who had the most joy in the audiologist's office when that happened? You could argue it was the woman who, for the very first time, is hearing things, and she's like hearing sounds, and it's so amazing, and heard her father's voice for the first time. You could argue it's the father who, for the very first time, it was understood that he said, I love you, baby girl, and she received it. But I would argue, sitting in the back of the room by the machine, most joy in the room was from the audiologist. Because today, as part of his job in his life, he got to facilitate some person hearing their father's voice for the very first time. And there's a moment where he's like, this is what I get to do. My friends, we have an opportunity, a charge, an invitation to be good news people, to help people hear their father's voice, to hear that they're loved, that they're enough, and that they're chosen and that they have a purpose in this world, and they can be a part of putting things back together as God puts their lives back together as well. What a gift that is. Let us not, if we're followers of Jesus, let us not ever look past what a gift it is to facilitate somebody hearing their Father's voice, their Heavenly Father's voice, for the first time. Because the kingdom is here, and now we get to share it with everybody. Everyone's invited.